And join me, please, in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we will be looking at verses 54 through 62. The title of our sermon is Living in Denial, and our key words are deny, know, and crow. Now, one of the things that I love so much about Scripture is the clarity and the honesty in which it deals with people and their circumstances. And prob- probably more prominently than anyone else in the Bible, in terms of their humanity being on display for us, in the good, the bad, and the ugly, we have the Apostle Peter. And while it may be a minor point, I think it is well worth noting that many people want to claim that the Bible is nothing more than a human book by men and cannot be trusted, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. And people tend to believe all the facts about other historical events that have happened based on writings of men from ancient times and and places, the things we know about the Trojan War, the Peloponnesian War, and Joan of Arc, and on and on. These historical accounts are, are trusted. They're cited as factual. They're, they're never questioned. And yet we have only a few manuscripts of their writing and none of the originals. They're considered undisputed, reliable, historical accounts. And all of these things are fascinating reads. They're remarkable. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't trust them as reliable. But as Christians, we are not the ones questioning reliability. But there's a minor fact about the historical reliability about the Scriptures that always screams out to me. And it's something you're not going to find in other books and historical records. Namely, that the Scriptures are so incredibly honest about the people in the stories, and even those people who are writing the stories. Peter is undoubtedly one of the earliest leaders of the church, and he would have been one of those so-called men who would have every desire to eliminate the facts from the scriptures that he didn't want others to know about him. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later, reading about a guy that is a lot like you and is a lot like me saying a lot of silly things, making a lot of rash decisions, jumping sometimes to some pretty insane conclusions, putting his foot in his mouth over and over and over again. Now, let's be honest. The gospel accounts don't paint Peter into a very attractive light. We can sometimes feel embarrassed for him. When Peter begins to talk, he's the kind of guy where all of his friends around him hold their breath and grimace in hopes that he doesn't say something too crazy. But if you were Peter, and you were involved in some massive controversy to concoct some fanciful story that wasn't true, don't you think you'd portray yourself in a bit better light than he has? You see, that's one of the beauties of the Scriptures. It's so real. It's so raw. We get things like David in the Psalms. One chapter we read David praising God and extolling the great mercies of God in his life. And then in the very next chapter he's saying things like, Why, oh God, have you forsaken me? Why am I in the depths of woe? 
But that's real life. That's human experience, isn't it? This is something that convinced C.S. Lewis of the authenticity of the Scriptures, all of the details and all of the realness of the Bible. You don't even read the greatest works of literature in the world and get the details that the Bible includes. And Peter is a great example. And of all of Peter's blunders, today we are coming to the most significant But now as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke, you've probably picked up on the fact that none of the disciples spoke as often as Peter. And so Jesus obviously responded to him more than he did any of the other disciples as well. He was rebuked most often and most strongly by Jesus. And yet he was also the most bold in confessing Jesus as Lord, as Christ, as the Son of the living God. But it's interesting to note on Peter... In that all the Gospels, they testify to his primacy among the disciples. In each of the four lists of the apostles given in the Gospels, the order of the names vary. But Peter's name is always first, and Judas's name is always last. And Peter, along with James and John, were the three apostles who were the closest to Jesus They, more than the other nine, were with Jesus at every single moment. They were witness to the most spectacular of all of Jesus' works. But in all of the things that Peter was, in all the things that Peter did, we can see ourselves. He was the common man, and that is so endearing to us. Because while the Lord needed to rebuke Peter so often, he also loved him so much. He showed him great compassion. He was incredibly patient with him. Is that not how the Lord deals with us? Great compassion, great patience. For all of Peter's blunders, he perhaps more than the others actually understood what was going on at the time more than they did. Remember, shortly after Jesus called Peter and he took a great catch of fish because he lowered his net on the other side of the boat as Jesus told him to, after doubting the Lord but being successful, Peter said to Jesus in Luke 5, 8, he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He understood something of his own heart very early on. And in that same conversation, Matthew writes, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then as soon as Jesus talks about how he's going to the cross to die, Peter turns around and says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Remember, it was Peter who said to Jesus, Lord, if that is you out on the water, call to me and I will come to you on the water. And Peter walked out on the water, but it was only a few short moments later when he was crying out, Lord, save me. Remember, another time, the people all around Jesus were abandoning him because he was starting to deal with their hearts instead of just their bodies and their possessions. And then Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, do you want to leave also? And Peter was the one who stood and responded and said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But we also see Peter, when Jesus lowers himself to wash the disciples' feet, almost rebuke Jesus and say, you shall never wash my feet. 
But then, hilariously, Jesus explains what he's doing to Peter. And then Peter says, Then, Lord, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head as well. So we get a laugh at Peter sometimes because he's, he's so rash in the things he says and does. But we fail to remember that we've never walked on water as Peter did. How often have we shown the kind of faith in the Lord, if even for a moment? Peter was a man. And Peter is one of the greatest examples of humanity. And Peter, more than probably anyone else in the Bible, is as real as it gets in terms of our being able to relate to him. One writer explained Peter so well, he said his impulsive deeds, his frequent questions, his eager exclamations and confessions, the praise and honor and rebukes that were bestowed upon him, his sometimes manly and sometimes cowardly acts, his oaths, his bitter tears, all this makes Peter the great companion and the great instructor of his fellow men and his fellow Christians. And this morning, we're going to look at what is probably the most instructive of all the moments in Peter's life, because in so many ways, Peter's failures are our failures. And Peter's triumphs because of Christ and because of the restoration that is offered him in Christ are our triumphs. Now, if we're honest, we will all identify ourselves in Peter's failures. And through his tears and in his moments of joy, because of what Jesus has done. And before we read our text for this morning, I want to remind you of what we looked at a few weeks ago. Look back a few verses, beginning in verse 31. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room, having just completed the Passover meal. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Judas has departed to betray him. The disciples are arguing over who's the greatest among them. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, that he may sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This happened only a few hours before the scene that we are looking at this morning. So let's read beginning in verse 54. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, Luke makes some of this seem like through all of the denials of Peter, it happened almost immediately, one after the other. But the other gospel writers help us to understand what probably happened over a period of about two hours or so. The other three writers show us Peter's three denials were, were stretched out. And, and while they happened in generally the same place, in the courtyard of the high priest, they happened in three different locations within the courtyard. And let's not forget the context of all of this either. While everything is going on with Peter, Jesus is just beginning to have to go through the horrific false trial that led to his crucifixion. During the middle of the night, the leaders of Israel with the Roman soldiers, we read last week, came to the Garden of Gethsemane and arrested Jesus. And then they're dragging him away. That's how verse 54 begins. They tie him up and they lead him away to the house of Annas, who's the former high priest. Now, he actually was the one who held the power among the Jews. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the current high priest. But they all turned to Annas still. So they started with Annas. And what were they doing there? They were attempting to find some kind of crime that they could accuse Jesus of, something they could decide he was guilty of, so they could put him through a trial and have some kind of legitimate reason to crucify him. After the trial at the house of Annas, there will be another trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then after that, there will be yet another trial just after dawn, so it's daylight. And in Jewish law, they could only have an official trial during the daylight hours. So this is when they will make all of their false accusations and trumped-up charges look to be legal, legitimate on the surface. So it's between here, uh, these first two trials, at Annas's house and then before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, where we see what's taking place, where Peter denies the Lord Jesus. So there's sort of two stories going on here. There's Jesus before Annas, and there is Peter in the courtyard. And the contrast between the two could not be more stark. Peter is failing miserably. He's crumbling. He's denying the Lord in a fearful situation. But Jesus is standing majestic. He's standing boldly and courageously before his enemies. Let's look briefly at how John writes about the events here. It's helpful to us as we walk through Peter's situation. If you want to look, it's John 18. We begin in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter 
in. Now, it's most often understood that this other disciple is John himself. Now, throughout John's gospel, he never really identifies himself in a positive sense. So here it'd be easy for him to kind of brag, I'm one of the two disciples who went with Jesus to the end, but instead he just says, one of the others. It's not about John. He goes on, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Now, Matthew also records this incident, but he says something I think really highlights Peter's heart. He writes, Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter is here, even in this moment, working to get as close to Jesus as he can. He's seeking entrance into the courtyard of the high priest. It's required that John gets him through the door because he knows the right people for Peter to do that. And you know, we're we're so quick to look at this incident with Peter and to condemn him. But even up to the last moment, Peter's desire was to see this through to the end. In fact, all of the other disciples had already disappeared. They're nowhere to be found. Peter is sticking close. He wants to live up to what he has said. Even in the moment he had told Jesus that he would go with him to prison or even to death, and undoubtedly that was still in his heart. It was his intention. But sometimes our intentions don't match reality. This was Peter's intention up to the point of actually being challenged. And let's be honest, all of us are a little bit more bold before we have to actually face the music, aren't we? I'm always a little bit more willing to confront a brother and sister in their sin or to share the gospel with a non-believer or take a public stand on a moral issue or put myself in a situation where I may be in danger for the sake of the gospel. I'm always a lot more willing to do those things when I'm not actually face-to-face with reality. But maybe sitting in my office, talking on the phone with a friend or, or surrounded by other Christians who agree with me. But when I'm on the street and the Lord drops a tremendous opportunity for me to share the gospel, or when someone blatantly sins before me and I have an obligation to respond to that, how does it look then? How am I going to respond? You see, our intentions and realities are often quite different, and Peter displays that for us in a very sad situation. But this is what we love about Peter's story, isn't it? Peter's story is our story. He loves Jesus, but in a moment of weakness and fear, he denies Jesus. And here's where we need to be confronted in our fear of man 
and the sin of denying Jesus. When we seek our own safety as it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ, we most often find ourselves in the greatest danger. Maybe not physically, but most certainly spiritually. Following Jesus, keeping our eye on him, is always better in the end than sin and denial. The consequences of standing firm, the consequences of being faithful, they sometimes seem to be too great to bear. But this is why we need to be prepared. This is why Jesus told the disciples back in the garden, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I read a quote from Kevin DeYoung earlier this week, and he said, If we have not prayed, lead us not into temptation today. We think too little of the devil and too lightly of our sin. That was the heart of what happened with the disciples in their denial of Jesus, wasn't it? Instead of staying alert and praying, Lord, keep us from temptation, what did they do? They they slept. And what happened as they slept? They woke up confused, troubled, fearful. They fell into temptation, and they all ran away. The others just abandoned Jesus outright. Peter follows closely, but soon will go the same route as them. And here now we see Peter, a fire kindled in the courtyard, Peter sits down to warm up, to take the chill off the cool night. He was afraid. He was panicking. He was there, if nothing else, Peter was there to prove that he wasn't the betrayer that Jesus only hours earlier told him he would be. He's there to prove himself. He wasn't wrong. The Lord thought too little of him. He was underestimated. So the Lord Jesus is on the inside in the house of Annas. Peter is below on the outside, sitting with the guards by the fire in the dark of night. And he's in the flickering light, seeming anonymous, trying to blend in, warming himself by the flame. And it's there we see Peter's first encounter. He's recognized by a servant girl. Luke writes in verse 56, A servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, And looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And this is Peter's first denial. I do not know him. Of course, it's a lie. It's an act of cowardice. It's a flat denial. He was caught off guard. Now, I suspect that Peter, in his mind, was fully prepared with a reply if he was dragged off by the Sanhedrin with Jesus alongside his master. He may have had that whole scenario planned out in his mind, but here, in the moment, in his most unexpected way, a servant girl calls him out in front of everyone, and he's caught off guard. So his immediate response is denial. Now, we've been in those situations, haven't we? Maybe surrounded by a less inviting crowd when it comes to our Christianity. We're timid to answer questions. We're reluctant to say anything at all. Maybe they even put us on the spot and try to drag us out into this. 
Today it happens a lot in moral issues. They're debated in our culture. They're never presented in a favorable manner. And we get questions. You're a Christian. You believe the Bible's true. So you must hate homosexuals, right? Well, no, I don't. So you think that homosexual marriage is a good thing. You're okay with that. Well, and that's the critical moment. How am I going to answer this? Now, in our minds, we can reason through. If I'm sitting down to write an article on my blog or write an email to someone or to think through a response I would give a friend before I call them on the phone... How can I explain to them that I can love someone while simultaneously disagree with their position on an issue and call what they're doing sin? But on the spot, in the moment, the spotlight is on. It's my time to speak, surrounded by people who disagree with me, looking for a reason to pounce. What's the easiest thing to do? Deny the truth. Agree with the person. Pretend like it's not that big of a deal. What's the right thing to do? Perhaps Peter's story is more our story than we're willing to admit. I don't know him. Peter's physically far off from the Lord right now. For three years he was by his side and now he's alone left to answer. No miracles to deliver him. And when he's all alone, he's a coward. Now, maybe he was ready for the big thing, but he wasn't ready for a little one. A little unexpected thing. A little servant girl brought him down. And his denial was immediate. He denied it before all of them. And then came the next accusation. Verse 58, a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Some time had passed. Peter had some time to think about what he had said to the servant girl and thinking perhaps, oh, that's behind us now. I can forget about that. I escape the ridicule. I escape being scrutinized. And then he hears it again. And this time again, Peter denies the Lord. He denies being associated with him at all. Now, no doubt, Peter was already feeling the sting of his first denial. But he did it again. You know, how often do we contemplate our sin? The times we've sinned and we are quick to promise ourselves to say even to the Lord, Lord, I'll never do that again. And then in the moment of truth, we do it again. Still, even now, Peter's not praying, Lord, keep me from temptation. Lord, make me ready for whatever I will face. Lord, prepare me to respond rightly to all of our enemies. The self-confident, self-assured apostle had now twice denied the Lord to protect himself. And the denials are coming out of his mouth almost automatically. Peter's confidence is imploding. He's collapsing in on himself. Everyone is starting to look at Peter a bit more intently. They're all coming after him now. Matthew says his accusers pointed him out again with words of derision. This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth, and Peter denied it with an oath. In other words, he said, I swear I don't know this man. 
His second denial is stronger than his first. And as the accusers mount and escalate, his denials escalate as well. And yet, for some reason, he cannot bring himself to leave. He's obviously fearful, but he can't leave. He lingers. He stays in the courtyard. Was it devotion to Jesus or was it pride? And then in verse 59, after an an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Mark's parallel account is more damning. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He said, I swear to God, and I will die if I'm lying to you. I don't know this man. Can you imagine the pain? Three times denying the Lord, feeling already the weight of the guilt of the first two times, just having done it a third time only to look up. And whose eyes did he see? The Lord Jesus, staring back at him, eye to eye. And off in the distance he hears the crow of a rooster. It's a chilling scene, isn't it? With all that's going on, Jesus pauses for just that moment and he looks straight into Peter's soul and the tears came immediately. We may never know the anguish and the hell that Peter went through in the next hours and the next days. Something died inside of him that night. Simon, the natural man, with all of his self-assured presumption, have you ever felt the sting of your own sin? In such a manner as Peter? Have you ever been crushed by the weight of the grief that comes when you know how grievously you've sinned in denying the Lord? Peter was immediately struck with the pain of his denial. He was immediately destroyed inside by his weakness, his unwillingness to stand, his cowardice, his frailty. J.C. Ryle gives us some good commentary on this section. Here's what he says. He writes, The various steps in Peter's fall are clearly marked out by the gospel writers. The first step was proud self-confidence. Though all men denied Christ, yet he never would. He was ready to go with him both to prison and to death. The second step was indolent neglect of his prayer. When his master told him to pray, lest he should enter into temptation, he gave way to drowsiness and was found asleep. The third step was vacillating indecision. When the enemies of Christ came upon him, Peter first fought, then ran away, then turned again, and finally followed afar off. The fourth step was mingling with bad company. He went into the high priest's house and sat among the servants by the fire, trying to conceal his religion and hearing and seeing all manner of evil. The fifth and last step was the natural consequence of the preceding four. He was overwhelmed with fear when suddenly charged with being a disciple. 
The snare was around his neck. He could not escape. He plunged deeper into error than ever. He denied his blessed master three times. The mischief, be it remembered, has been done before. The denial was only the disease coming to a head. And see, the application in our lives should be obvious. Our sin, what we do when we deny the Lord in our words and our actions, it is something that comes as a result of the moment. Yes, Peter was caught off guard, and we are often in the same kind of predicament. But what goes into all of that in that moment? All of the little things that have happened moment by moment by moment before then all the things we didn't do, and all the things we did. In other words, we must be aware of all of the little things of our lives so that in those moments we are not caught off guard. Again, J.C. Ryle says, the professing Christian who begins to say of any sin or evil habit, it is but a little one, is in imminent danger. He's sowing seeds in his heart which will one day spring up and bear bitter fruit. But the Christian who keeps his heart diligently in little things shall be kept from great falls. Yes, you see, Peter denied the Lord, but it wasn't just the denial. It was everything leading up to that moment. And brothers and sisters... We only have a fear of man when we lack a fear of God. And we only lack a fear of God when we're not diligent to to tend to even the most mundane matters of our souls. When we neglect the means of grace. When we have no soul care. Not feeding our hearts with the word of God. Not spending time before the Lord in prayer. Not gathering with our families for worship and, and foregoing the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. Today, those things may seem very small. Tomorrow, it may seem insignificant. But when the time comes, how will we stand faithfully for the Lord instead of falling back in denial when we've cared nothing for our souls leading up to it? We must be ready. Our souls must be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ that we cannot, when we talk, help but say biblical things and speak biblical truth into the circumstances that we encounter. And we must wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But when we go into battle, you can't use my sword, and I can't use your sword. Each of us must have our swords, and they must be sharpened and ready for battle. How are you utilizing the means of grace? How are you keeping your heart prepared day by day for the onslaughts of the evil one? The world, the flesh, the devil, they are after us each and every day. How might we stand against them boldly, confidently, courageously? By fearing God instead of fearing man. Because we know God intimately through his word and through his people who we share communion with. Any great athlete will tell you that practice should be as close to reality as possible. So when it's game time, there's very little difference. Are you pursuing holiness in your life? Are you striving to keep in communion with God each day? We must. 
lest we find ourselves listening for the rooster to crow, reminding us that we've denied the Lord. It's never the big sin that's the issue. It's all of the little sins along the way that we've brushed off as little things. The compromises, the laziness, the lack of concern and vigilance. And you know, in this life, we're going to fail. And we recognize that, and in no way will we ever in this life escape our proneness to wander. But thanks be to God that those of us who are in Jesus Christ are in Jesus Christ forever and ever. I thank God that Peter's story doesn't end with denial. Flip with me over to John chapter 21. John 21. We'll look at verse 15. And this is after Jesus is resurrected. He's appearing to his disciples for the next 40 days. But here we see Jesus and seven of the disciples. Each of them are beaten down and confused. They've all gone back to fishing because they didn't know what else to do. But Jesus addresses Peter in this moment. John 21, beginning of verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Three times Peter denied the Lord. Three times the Lord asked him, Do you love me? It was the Lord gently, lovingly, graciously, tenderly restoring his disciple. It's just that way with the Lord Jesus and us, isn't it? When we sin, when we fall, when we fail, when we deny the Lord, he is so quick in our repentance to remind us of his promises. He is with us. He has forgiven us. He has died for us. We are made clean. And and what became of Peter is also our story. Not just his failures, but his triumph. After he was restored, Peter was no longer a man-fearing coward, but he was a bold apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to church history, Peter was martyred for the faith by crucifixion, but He didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord Jesus, so they hung him upside down. And we can thank God that Peter, for our sake, has been purposely portrayed by the Holy Spirit in the Bible as a very human man to whom we can all relate. 
He is the type of all of those who have come to Christ in loving submission, but with the passing of time who have succumbed to independence and self-reliance. Peter is us. And Peter's experience is our experience writ large on the pages of Scripture so that we won't miss it. In Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he wrote, Though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It's not wearied by our sin or our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Dear believer, you will sin. You will repent. And praise be to God, you will be forgiven. There's no greater news than that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the life of Peter, for the testimony of the scriptures to Peter's life. Because, Lord, in so many ways we see ourselves in our dear brother, in all the ways that Peter was prone to sin, in all the ways he was quick with words, in all of his silly questions, in all of his self-importance, in all of his self-reliance, we see ourselves. And so, Father, we thank you that as we consider the life of Peter, that you drive us to repentance. Because we recognize, Lord, that in no way, as we walk in this life, can we encounter the enemies of God in our own strength. Father, how will we stand in times of greatest trial and pressure and challenge to our faith? I pray, God, that you keep our hearts, prepare us day by day by day to face the onslaughts of the evil one. Give us a greater love and desire for the means of grace. Keep us accountable to one another. And Lord, lead us away from temptation. Deliver us from evil. And if we fall into temptation, Lord, drive us to our knees in quick repentance and restore us that we not be crushed by the weight of our guilt and sin. And Father, more than anything, we thank you in the depths of our heart this morning that the last word is not condemnation in our sin and denial, but it is full of mercy. It is full of abundant grace. And we rejoice and thank you, O God, that you do not grow weary in granting your children forgiveness in restoring us and sending us out to be bold, courageous disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might live faithful lives, not denying, but rejoicing in the Lord Jesus in all of life. Help us to be a more courageous people, a people who live each day for the glory of Christ, for the good of those around us, 
that you may be exalted. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the challenge your word brings and the hope that it restores. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.